The crossing of the Red Sea was a defining, extraordinary event in the life of the people. God had delivered them out of Egypt. Plagues of judgment had been poured out in that land of Egypt. Exodus 14 puts the people at the edge of the Red Sea. And we get a glimpse at the Red Sea that all might not be well within the hearts of the Israelites. In Exodus 14, here's what they say to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt you take us out to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt, they say to Moses. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Now that was before the Red Sea. After crossing the Red Sea, walking between walls of water on dry ground, and the enemies of the people who pursued hotly, were destroyed by the watery judgment. The people of Israel go into the wilderness heading toward Mount Sinai and they're concerned about provisions. So after the Red Sea, here's what they say. Exodus 15, 24. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? You turn a page in your Bible to Exodus 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For you've brought us into the wilderness to kill the assembly with hunger. In Exodus 17, they quarrel with Moses and they say, give us water to drink. Moses says, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. And they said to him, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That was before Mount Sinai. Then they get to Mount Sinai. Not long after they arrive at Sinai, Moses goes to the top of the mountain to encounter the Lord. And at the bottom of the mountain, in Exodus 32... When the people saw Moses had delayed from coming down from the mountain, they gathered together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this man Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. We're in Numbers 11 today. And yet the book of Exodus has given us reasons before the Red Sea and after the Red Sea. Before Sinai and after Sinai. To think to ourselves, among the people of Israel, not all is well within every person in that camp. There are heart conditions that are evident spiritually in the murmurings and grumblings. And we could even say a pattern of rebellion we are noticing. Numbers 11 is not some out of the blue. It's like, what in the world? How are they speaking this way? Where did this kind of talk come from? If we zoom out of numbers and we have in view all that's happened already in Exodus, we should be concerned that they continue to test the Lord. They continue to defy the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They continue to grumble and murmur despite, despite the proven faithfulness of Of the Lord. It's not as if they don't have some sort of shared memory to say, Don't you recall when God did this? Weren't we all there when we came out through this? They've been at Sinai for 11 months, not years. 
months from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10 when they departed. Now, in the first 10 chapters of Numbers, which have preceded our passage today, things have gone relatively well. There have been instructions that were obeyed. There have been uh, particular procedures that were followed. In fact, we find something that's quite unusual in the Bible. Ten chapters in a row where nobody does anything crazy. Good luck finding ten chapters in a row elsewhere in the Old Testament where that's the case. And in Numbers 1 to 10, we're quite optimistic. And we think, all right, well, here are a people commissioned by God in covenant from Sinai. They've got the tabernacle they've built. They are going to traverse to the promised land. And we find a shift in Numbers 11 that is jarring. It's like when you didn't realize there was a step on the sidewalk and you're just walking along. And then your foot goes and your back hurts. And you think, well, I didn't see that coming. Numbers 11 is the kind of jarring experience for the reader where you feel like, what did I just drop off here? Are these the same people at the same mountain, same travel? Now, they have just departed Sinai, going north. And they're going to have a series of travels where they are going to be heading toward the promised land. But as they travel, verse 1 gives us the murmuring of the Israelites. And in chapter 11, 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. It wouldn't be possible to do otherwise. It's all in the hearing of the Lord. But they complained in the hearing of the Lord about their their misfortunes. But that's such an interesting word in the text. You know, in the original language, there were no such things as quotations. But if there had been, it would be, I think, the writer saying, they complained about their misfortunes. All right, people redeemed out of Egyptian slavery, provided every morning by manna from the Lord, guided by pillar and cloud, redeemed from Egyptian pursuit and military captors. These are people heading into a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, what a misfortunate people. They complain about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. This introduction in Numbers of complaint occurs in Numbers for the first time here. First ten chapters were amazingly, consistently hope-giving. And then we see in chapter 11-1, have the people who have gone through the Red Sea and gone to Mount Sinai and seen what they have seen and experienced what they've experienced, not remembered the mercies of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord, and the wrath of the Lord? Those who oppose the Lord find themselves in the target of his judgment. And in chapter 11, 1, they are complaining and murmuring. And I don't think that this is to mean, oh, somebody whispered something for the first time. The complaint or the murmuring in chapter 11 is part of an overall direction of rebellion that we've been concerned about since Exodus. Nothing new here, nothing novel, but rather something that unfortunately resumes a prior pattern that we hoped would have been left at Sinai. Let's leave all the murmurings there. Let's leave the grumblings there. Let's go forward under the cloud and fire of the Lord's presence. But instead, with their murmurings and complaints about their misfortunes, and it doesn't even tell us in chapter 11 what those would have been. 
What were they complaining about? Oh, this tribe is just traveling too close to us. Or, you know, we don't like the, the fire in the cloud and these particular temperature effects. Or, I mean, you can just sort of wonder, what is it? What is it that's so bad that these people are engaging in the continued pattern of rebellion that was at the case before they walked through walls of water in Exodus 14? This is a scene of rebellion. We know that this must have been serious and ongoing and open defiance because in the hearing of the Lord, these people's murmurings are not only heard, but the Lord's response is to send fire among the outlying parts of the camp. The outlying parts of the camp, it envisions for us a people who have stopped for the moment and outlying parts of the camp would be outside the camp, like a perimeter. Okay, what I'm envisioning in my mind is that fire begins to light up the perimeter around the camp and it is to arrest the the attention of the people who are focused on something that they wish had been the case, which on the face of it seems objectively absurd for them to phrase the way they do. We'll see this in just a moment. What's in the hearts of these people that's going to come out minimizes the redemptive work of the Lord and seems to raise up and exalt their prior state in captivity in Egypt. It's a strange thing that their minds are doing. This uh, fire of the Lord descends. Fire guides them and cloud guides them. That's not this kind of fire. This might be something similar to Mount Carmel and Elijah and the prophets of Baal where fire descends to demonstrate divine authority and presence over against something that was false or rebellion that should be turned from. And here, this is a, let's call it a warning from the Lord. Earlier in Exodus, Moses said, why do you continue to test the Lord? That very question could be asked here. Why is it? That given all you have seen and all that God has done and all that lies before you, why do you test the Lord? This is not wisdom on display, but foolishness. And the warning fire of God consumes outlying parts of the camp. I don't take that to mean that people perished in this, but rather the outskirts and perimeter of the camp were lit up in a way that warned the rebellious people. It tells us in verse 3, they even named the place. Not because they were staying there. But it was of such significance to them that said, well, we're going to go ahead and, you know, put the put the marker up. And when they're going to name the place, it's Tabera, which is a word meaning burning. The name of the place correlates with what's just happened. Right. It tells us because the fire of the Lord burned among them. We have seen a few verses here that will un unfortunately set a stage for the future chapters of numbers with these traveling people. A pattern of complaint followed by the Lord's judgment or discipline. And then Moses intercedes for them in verse 2. The people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. We see the intercession of Moses in later stories and the Lord's judgment relents. It says the fire died down, which is a way of saying the Lord restrained any further judgment. The outlying parts of the camp were what remained burned only. And then then we also see the people name a place. There will be places named along the way that fit this kind of pattern. But in verses 4 through 9, a pattern is taken up again with a second scene. 
Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. We don't get the passing of time between the perimeter that had been lit on fire versus what we see in verses 4 to 9. But we, we have some passing of time where again something is stirring in the camp. The rabble, this, this word is likely a reference to the non-Israelites who had joined the Israelites out of Egypt. And had been traveling with them and among them and had been incorporated as those not only following the pillar and cloud and fire, but these accountable to the covenant stipulations and commands of the Lord. These are among the Israelites. And then we find that not only the rabble that was among the Israelites had a strong craving, the people of Israel also wept again in verse 4. Maybe you can realize that sometimes complaint and murmuring can be contagious. And here it is contagious in the camp of Israel. Spreads like a virus. A virus of the mind and heart. Where all of a sudden people are questioning this and murmuring about that. And others are saying, well you know what? Absolutely. They're right. Absolutely. You're, that's a great question to ask. I wonder why this. And all, all of a sudden the people of Israel begin to weep. They wept again and they said, oh that we had meat to eat. Strong desires were on display in verse 4. A strong craving. Food and thirst questions were part of the exodus events, right? Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17. I cited from those earlier where we saw those were provision concerns. And God had shown himself faithful. He had provided for the people. He had guided them with steadfast love and presence. And now in verse 4 of our passage... They say, oh, that we had meat to eat. Discontent is contagious. And rather than challenging the mindset and the words, rather than repeating the steadfast faithfulness and love of the Lord like one of the psalmists might, it says in verses 5 and following what they begin to expound on. Oh, yes, they had a craving. And, and as they think about cravings, they, they experience what you and I experience when we think about certain foods or certain tastes. We can imagine, we can imagine places. We can imagine settings. And, and we can think, ah, oh, this location or that place where I first had this. When they start thinking about meat, they start drooling over Egypt. Can you imagine? In verse 5, we remember the fish. We ate, the, we ate it there and it costs nothing. Costs nothing? I'm just going to have to pass over that for a moment. That's a strange thing for them to say. It costs nothing. And the cucumbers there. Oh, and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. I used to imagine a group of people just throwing out names of food. Oh, we remember Egypt. Boy, wasn't it great there? And then they look at their current circumstances and they say in verse 6, Oh, now, you know, what's the case now? Now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. One writer puts it this way, that grumbling distorts your vision. Think of this. He says, grumbling distorts, distorts your vision. It reimagines something. And despises the good gifts of God around you in the present. And ignores God's promises about the future. Grumbling distorts your vision. How do we see that at work in the Israelites right here in Numbers 11? They're looking back to Egypt and reimagining their experience there. 
As if they just lived high on the hog, as they say, right? Where they are just enjoying all the food and benefits of the land and it just costs nothing. Oh, we just live for free eating all such wonderful food. Well, I don't know that I would imagine ruthless Egyptian servitude as something that they say costs nothing. What about their daily well-being, physical strength? You know, our strength is dried up. Oh, in Egypt, did your strength just abound? Did you just have strength without end? Making bricks without straw? When you read the book of Exodus, and you read in Numbers 11, you can realize the effect that time and sin and grumbling can have on the memory. And on the present evaluation of things. They are heading into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're talking about Egypt as if they have left the land flowing with milk and honey. It's crazy. Our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna. Nothing at all but this manna. Let's think about the manna for a moment. What is this? Verses 7 to 9 is a narrative interruption in the dialogue. And the, the narrator is going to tell us, by the way, here's what the manna was. Is it some sort of nasty thing that would be horrible to put in their mouth that they had to choke down with water and just think, oh, I can't even chew. This is like coriander seed, which is a common spice still used in cultures around the world. Small brown seeds. It doesn't say it was coriander seed, but like coriander seed, having a flavor to it. Its appearance was like bdellium, which is something that might uh, be a gum-like consistency. And in verse 8, here's what the people would do. They would go about and gather it and ground it up in hand mills or beat it in the mortars, boil it in pots and make cakes. They would prepare it in different ways. Grinding it up, boiling it, making it into cakes. How did they acquire this manna? Verse 9 says, when the dew fell upon the camp by the night, the manna fell with it. Here's what we're reminded about. In Exodus 16, God began to give every morning a provision of food that tasted good on the ground for the people to leave their tent and gather. Every morning. They would not gather on the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day of the week. So on the sixth day of the week, he would give twice as much. Give us this day our daily bread. They would pray and he did. He gave them daily bread, daily manna. He gave them the strength they needed, the food they needed. And it was good. And he was foreshadowing and they were foretasting the blessings of God in store for them in a land of promise flowing with milk and honey. The Lord was leading them out of captivity and through wilderness into everlasting blessing and life. This was their future. And along the way, they could trust the Lord. And if enough weeks went by and they knew I was going out of my tent in the morning and there was more manna, I could trust that the mercies and manna of the Lord were going to be new every day. I could trust that if I went out because of what God had done the day before and the week before and the month before, that I knew I would go out and there would be more manna on the ground because God is faithful. And these, these Israelites, among the others in the camp of non-Israelites, they begin to speak about Egypt as if it was the great place of flourishing and blessing for them. When we look in Exodus 2, they were crying out to the Lord in their servitude for deliverance. And here they wake up to miracles on the ground every morning. The mercies and manna of God delivered to them. Now Moses, Moses has endured months and months of different challenges Different complaints and murmurings. And, and, and this is a moment that is not Moses' best hour. 
That's another way of saying, you know the grumbling that was contagious within the camp? Hey, it got a hold of Moses too. And while the people of Israel started grumbling about the food, Moses started grumbling about the people of Israel. And his words here are not good. The questions he asks, the accusations and insinuations he makes toward the Lord, it's outrageous. I am glad Moses turned to the Lord with his complaints and laments. As this, by God's grace and mercy and steadfast love, this will get worked through. Moses, in his humanity, has a scene recorded here where it tells us he heard the people weeping throughout their clans in chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 10. He heard the people weeping. I mean, you might think to yourself, listen, if I'm really bothered by something and and I've got to go and I'm going to be emotional over it, I I might not just wail about it to where it's going to draw public attention. I might try to get by myself. I might try to deal with it and stifle it. I might try to just let the tears flow and not the sounds. Think of the collective accumulation of sound and cries. For Moses' attention to be prompted. The people weeping. And he just hears this weeping. And it's not like it's just coming from there. It's coming from there and from there and from there and from there. It's in the camp. It's throughout the clans. Everyone at the door of his tent. And even the placement of that is outrageous. At the door of everyone's tent is where every morning you would go. And outside your door you would find manna every morning. But they're tired of looking at manna. So what do they do at the door of their tent? They don't go out the door of their tent and say, Once again, the provision of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord. Praise be Yahweh for His steadfast love. They go to the door of their tent and they are just weeping. Weeping. And Moses hears this throughout the the camp. And it says the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. We saw in chapter 11, 1, that the anger of the Lord was kindled. The anger of the Lord kindled. Okay, now I'm going to notice an escalation with you. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Verse 10. That's, diff- that's not kindling. All right, I can think of a fire in a fire pit and something. You know, the fire is being kindled versus the fire is blazing hotly. That took some time. The book of Exodus does tell us. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, full of loving kindness toward the generations of his people. The narratives of the Old Testament prove the self-disclosure of the Lord, that he is slow to anger. And yet the open rebellion that is at work in the camp, that has infected other minds and spread like a spiritual virus among the people. Moses Here's the weeping. God's anger blazes. Moses is displeased. Now you might say, well, you know, Moses is displeased with the people. If we only had verse 10, if we only had verse 10, we might be saying as an interpreter, oh, he's displeased. He's like, Lord, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're displeased with them. And Lord, I just want to say, I want to echo that, that you're right. I can't believe what they're doing. Moses is displeased, but the displeasure here is aimed at the Lord. It tells us in verse 11, Moses' words to the Lord with some questions. The question that he begins with, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Moses doesn't have anybody in mind other than himself. And Moses is thinking a lot about himself in these verses. Because thinking a lot about oneself and grumbling and discontentment turn out to be a cluster of things found together often. 
And here in verse 11, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Speaking of himself as the servant of the Lord, he is asking the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? He sees the weeping throughout the land, the land, the weeping throughout the camp. And he sees his situation as an undesirable set of circumstances that he says, you've dealt ill with me. It's another way of saying, I don't think you should have done this. Question number two, why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? These are questions spoken in anger and displeasure to the Lord. The question about favor is a fascinating one. Why have I not found favor in your sight? Let's rewind the tape. Back when we had tapes to rewind. When you think about the scene of Israel and their exodus deliverance, the favor of the Lord upon the people versus the judgment of the Lord upon the Egyptians is clear. The deliverance of the people through the Red Sea. Moses on Mount Sinai encountering the glory and presence of the Lord, receiving commandments and instructions, a tabernacle that they build at the bottom. Moses experiences over and over again the blessings and love and presence of the Lord. Moses is welcomed to the tent of meeting where Yahweh will speak to him as a man might speak to another person face to face. And Moses says to God, why have you dealt ill with me? Moses says to God in chapter 11 and in verse 11, um, why have I not found favor in your sight? He looks at his circumstances and he has said, if I'm going through this, that must mean I don't have favor upon me from you. Because if I had favor from you, I would not be going through this. So, you know, Moses, Moses is the authority, you see, on what it looks like for favor to be from God or from God. And Moses is making it all about circumstances. And he doesn't like what's happening around him. And so Moses has defined favor from God as not what I'm currently going through. And because he is going through that. He is grumbling about the people who were grumbling about their circumstances. You see, Moses is more like them than he realizes. He's thinking of himself as mistreated by the Lord. I'm so mistreated. Been dealt an ill hand here. Oh, I obviously don't have your favor. He's lamenting and yet murmuring and grumbling just about different things. The sin is the same. The words are just different in content. And then he says in verse 12, did I conceive all this people? And he means here conceiving as if bringing them to pass, bringing them into existence. That's what he means in the next question. Did I give them birth? So conception and birth, images of bringing someone to life, right? And here he says, the Israelites are living people. Did I call for their conception? Did I deliver them in birth? And he says in verse 12, these questions, because Moses' answer is, well, no, I did not. I didn't conceive this people. I didn't bring them to pass and multiply them as a nation. He even says in verse 12, did I give them birth that you would say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child. He views the people of God as infantile. Different Old Testament scholars have noticed this. That his comparison, the metaphor 
as he thinks of the people of God under his care. He's the adult in the room and they're just a bunch of infants he's having to deal with. Carrying the nursing children. And he says, and I'm doing this to the land. I'm just going to carry them. I'm going to carry them the whole way. Talk about strength that's dried up as they say, I can't do this alone. The land that you swore to their fathers, I'm going to go there carrying these like a a nursing mother carries her nursing child. You see, Moses is viewing them in a very uncharitable way, even if their behavior is similar to what you might call a tantrum among the camp. And then in verse 12, this imagery is followed by another question. Verse 13, where am I to get meat? You can feel the conflict within Moses. What am I supposed to do? Carry them as a nursing mother carries her nursing child, and I'm just going to go all the way to the promised land, nursing and carrying these babies? This, but by the way, where, where can I get the meat for them? Where could I even do that? Moses' internal conflict, it seems to be that he is in leadership and care over the people, and he wants to know where. Where would I get all this meat in verse 13? They want meat. They weep. They weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. He hears their cries. He's outraged by it. He's frustrated with the Lord above all. And yet he says, and where would I even go to get that, by the way? They're weeping. They're crying out for meat. I, in verse 14, am not able to carry all this people alone. My burden is too heavy. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you realize Moses isn't alone. Aaron is with him and in strategic roles in the book of Exodus and in Leviticus and in the book of Numbers. And then you have in Exodus 18 a situation where so many disputes came to Moses that a whole group of elders and leaders needed to be established to help administer the proper care and decisions among the people of Israel. Moses isn't alone. He was never alone. But it's easier for him to justify his words and grumbling by thinking of a situation that he's in that isn't exactly true. He's not alone. But as long as in his mind he thinks that it's on him and it's on his shoulders and he's got to bear all of this. The Lord never told him that. The Lord never said, now Moses, here's what it's going to be like. A nursing mother and their nursing child all the way to the promised land. Buckle up. He doesn't have any language like that, right? And in chapter 11, verse 14, the burden is too heavy for me. God has never asked Moses to bear it all himself anyway. Moses has adopted ways of thinking in this moment and viewing and evaluating the circumstances, ways of thinking and phrasing that are not true. And it doesn't help his situation by having a distorted vision. It worsens it. In fact, if his mindset is that he's the only one bearing the people, if his mindset is, I'm totally alone in this, if his mindset is, I've been ill-treated by God, not only is Moses dealing with those falsehoods, It will instill within him a delusion that will affect all of his future responses. It matters what he believes about the Lord. It matters that he remembers accurately what God has done. And the steadfast love of the Lord. So that he would avoid a distorted way of thinking about God and about the people. Because if he thinks about God wrongly and he thinks about the people wrongly and he thinks it's only me, I'm the only one that's going to do this, then he's going to utter something like verse 15. If you're going to treat me like this, just kill me. 
Moses would rather not go on living if he's going to continue experiencing this. If you will treat me like this, the insinuations there are not subtle. He's talking to the Lord and not to anybody else in the camp. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight. So in other words, he's imagining, let's say if God's reply to him is, well, you have favor in my sight. And then Moses is like, well, if that's true, then just kill me. Because if this is what favor looks like, I don't want any of that. And I don't want to go one more day with these people weeping at the door of their tent. If I have found favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Now, the word wretchedness there is a reference to what's external. The wretchedness there is the same word for trouble. And it's about circumstances or troubles or wretched situations that people are in. Here's what Moses is saying. Kill me if I find favor in your sight. So that I don't have to be in this wretchedness or see these troubling circumstances in people anymore. You see, Moses thinks the answer to the situation is that that trouble out there would need to be dealt with or he has to be taken off the map. But what if Moses were to recognize here that there is wretchedness in his heart and not just out there? What if you were to recognize that the trouble in Moses' life is not just them? What if Moses were to realize that his own attitude and disposition toward the Lord and toward the people and in his very unique role in redemptive history and given God's faithfulness and the promises of the land to come, what if Moses realizes there's trouble inside me, wretchedness inside me? And then we would sing, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound is, saved a wretch like me. If we recognize what sin does to us, The stupidity that it can lead us into with delusions of thinking about ourselves, exalting self and diminishing neighbor, distorting views of the Lord, thinking and whining and murmuring about life in such a way that they would simply look at them as the Moses is just a victim of all of his circumstances. Oh, if you're going to treat me like this, Lord, just kill me. I find it fascinating that in this very chapter. Moses expresses a loathsome attitude toward the people near the end of our passage this morning. But earlier in chapter 11 too, he interceded for them. What a relationship they had together. Not always incredibly consistent because in chapter 11 too, the people cried out to Moses. Moses prays to the Lord. The, people, the fire dies down. So he's an intercessor, a mediator for them. He's a mediator for them, but in the right circumstances and in the right time of day, Moses might very well turn on the people and say, Lord, will you just kill me, please? These are some of the most honest and disturbing words of Moses. You recognize for all the looming shadow of of his leadership from Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is a man in need of grace and mercy himself. It's not as if Moses is a leader of the people because he has it all together. Just read Numbers 11. And yet, his role as a mediator was important. And yet, his role in speaking and acting rightly before the people mattered. Moses imitates their grumbling and murmuring. They're murmuring about the food. He starts murmuring about the people. The people were needing to learn that hard lesson that was the case even in Exodus. Man does not live on manna alone. Man does not live on bread alone. 
But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, the danger of the people who have left Sinai is that they are so preoccupied with the physical desires, the fleshly longings and cravings for meat, that they are ignoring the words and goodness of the Lord. That they are so enamored with the acts and, and cravings of the flesh that the things of the Spirit have not entranced their imaginations. Such that Moses could even get to a place in his mind where he would say, the Lord isn't treating me right. Man doesn't live on bread alone. The word manna, this language about bread and manna from heaven, is taken up by Jesus himself in John chapter 6. Jesus knew the stories of the Old Testament, obviously. And as the people of God were gathered through the wilderness, again and again, the stories in the Old Testament, especially in Numbers, tell of their open rebellion. And Jesus references that earlier wilderness generation. And he says, you know, the Lord gave manna from heaven, but those people still died. That bread still had to come every morning. You had to eat it or you would perish. But that bread was just temporary. And then he says of himself in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am the manna that has come down from heaven. Greater than the manna of your fathers. You see, these people would go to the door of their tent, and if they thought of their manna one more time, they would just weep throughout the clans. Jesus is the bread of life. And these people are so hungry for the wrong thing, they have re-envisioned what their slavery in Egypt was like. And I can't imagine... In the mind of a believer coming to a point where we'd say, you know, here I am following Jesus. Here I am attending on the Lord's day. Here I am trying to read my scriptures and pray before the Lord. But man, in the life I used to live, it was leeks and garlic and onions and meat pots. I remember what it was like before Christ. And we can romanticize slavery to sin in our foolishness. And we could think to ourselves, you know, I wonder, I wonder actually if I was better off back then. Before all of this, before the deliverance and before Sinai and before the promises of a land to come. I wonder if it really was better before all of this. Now, of course, sin never is better. Sin never presents itself honestly. They're thinking about the particular food that they came from. And if you read in Exodus 2, you don't get reports and narratives about all of their dining tables filled with all of these wonderful things. Instead, you have a moaning, groaning, crying people who are in need of deliverance. We must remember and preach to one another and to ourselves the honest situation of slavery to sin. The gravity of our need. The horror of open-handed rebellion against God. And the great mercy and grace of God that has delivered us. And may the Lord guard us from thoughts that would look at our life before Christ. And where Christ has now brought us and think, oh, maybe it was better in Egypt. Friends, it was never better in Egypt. We must sense the bitterness of sin. One of the Puritans said, till sin be bitter... Christ will not be sweet. And the insight with that expression is that if we do not sense and rightly understand the bitterness of sin, the sweetness of the saving news of Jesus Christ will not land on our hearts as it should. Jesus is the bread of life and he is our mediator. Oh, he's better than Moses. 
You know what Jesus has never said to the Father? He has never said, did I give these people birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? Where am I to get meat for all this people? They weep and they say this, I'm not able to carry this burden alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Oh, you, you don't have a mediator like Moses. You have a mediator far greater than Moses. We need an intercessor who will not turn against us. In all our foolishness, in all our wobbling of unbelief, in all our murmurings, we need an intercessor who will not turn from us. And we have him. His name is Jesus. He is a better mediator. He never says to the Father, Behold, these people, what am I to do with them? Oh, Christ knows exactly how to care for us. He knows exactly how to supply and shepherd His people. He hears us. And not reluctantly, but lovingly, patiently, gladly. And on this very Lord's Day, He does not turn from us. We gather once more before the good news of Christ. We think of Him as the manna from heaven. And we recognize, alright, this story of the Israelites, there might be something of us in this sometimes too. And the good news of the better mediator is connected to the better covenant. Not a covenant like this in Numbers 11, one that could be broken. One where the fire of the Lord would break out in the perimeter of the camp. We have a new covenant in Christ Jesus. We have a situation where our trust in Him anchors us with everlasting pardon and forgiveness. And Christ on the cross has satisfied the fiery judgment of God. There is no judgment for us. We are not, we are not condemned. Better than walls of water and better than plagues upon Egypt was the work of a cross where God God and His Son, the mighty hands and outstretched arms of Christ satisfies the judgment of the Lord greater than walls of water. And now we proclaim a new covenant in Him. He is our manna from heaven. Mercies every morning in Him. And the believer doesn't think on the good news of the gospel And weep with despair at the tent door. We think of Christ. And our hearts meditate on the goodness of the gospel. And if we were to weep. It is out of joy and delight. And wonder and humility. And the staggering truth that we are loved. With an everlasting love. Through a mediator who does not turn to us. But is drawn near to us. So friends let us draw near to him. He loves us. Let's pray.